Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bible with you or some version of it, if you will open it or turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are venturing into the next chapter in our study of 1 Corinthians, which is taking us into all kinds of interesting topics. And it's going to take us into an interesting topic here this morning. This is probably going to be the longest introduction to a message you've ever heard. But the message isn't that long, so it, it's, it's weighted in the introductory category. Because it's just a lot of thoughts that are jumping into my head as we begin to discuss this topic. I, I, I titled the message this morning, We Need to Have a Sex Talk. And those, every one of those words is carefully chosen. I could preach from each one of them. We, meaning this church, or the body of Christ gathered, need... This is not a topic that, well, maybe we could get to this one, maybe we don't need to get to this one. No, no, we need to talk about this topic. We need to have a sex talk. And it needs to feel as, I'm going to try and undo some of the awkwardness, although I can't undo a certain level of the awkwardness of talking in this category. But let me just maybe fine-tune a couple of things that will allow some of you to participate in this message by first saying this, uh, no church, no pastor, no Bible needs permission to talk about sex. Now, I know it feels kind of weird, you know, we're going to talk about sex in church, this is church, you know, we're going to talk about sex in church. The whole idea that this would be awkward tells us something about what has happened to this subject matter. It's like the devil and sin hijacked it a long time ago, put it in a particular location, and all that is associated with that topic now is dirty, it's questionable, seedy, dark. It's just not the kind of stuff you talk about in mixed company, you know? I mean, and, and you know, certainly don't bring it up in church. Oh my gosh, Keith, for real? You're going to talk about sex in church? All right, well, can I just tell you, I'm not the one bringing this up. Right? And we have been talking about this subject ever since we jumped into 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 5, 6, Seven. It's like this is an issue in the culture then. It's an issue in the culture now. But, but can, can we all give ourselves permission to talk about this subject by, by recognizing this? Uh, sex, the topic, the concept, the intimacy, the wiring, the activity, everything that makes you kind of go, ooh, man, you're getting way too specific. The anatomy. Oh, now you're way, way too specific. God invented all of it. He invented all of it. He didn't inherit it. This isn't God coming on the scene of this topic saying, oh my gosh, this, who made this? Oh, this is so stupid. This is full of problems. What were they thinking when they made this? I'm going to need to do something with this and try and fix it. No, this is not how God approaches this subject. This is God's subject. 
It didn't exist at all until God said, hmm, what would be good in this area? And God invented all that pertains to an appropriate view of understanding sex. So in no way should the church or anybody feel like we need special permission to talk about sex. Now, the problem is our culture and the world that we live in, as well as the Corinthians, has so distorted, twisted, perverted, and changed this subject matter so that when we go to talk about it now, it's almost like we got to go dig it out of the closet that's got mold and filth and it stinks horribly and let's take it out of there and now let's talk about it. All right, that's not the closet that it started out in. Sex that God created was a beautiful, wonderful gift given to his creatures. That's the appropriate place for us to try and understand it. But I get it's a corrupted, problematic subject today. So I kind of want to say another reason why we need to talk about this. Is because sex sits in our world in a particular way. And our culture is obsessed with it. uh, Obsessed with a strange version of it. But sex is what I'm going to call like, like a, a building block. It, it's something beneath the level of our lives. It's sort of like, you know, there's a lot of talk today in, in the biology world about DNA. You know, DNA is the building blocks of what makes you kind of who you are. It's, it's really at a small level. But when you go to look at your eye color and your, just how tall you are and everything that makes up who you are, there's building blocks to that. Well, the life that you and I are living have building blocks in it too. So our culture, our society has building blocks in it. So we would say, you know, you got society, a massive building block of society is the family. Although the world today is not even mentioning that one anymore. A massive building block to the family is marriage. And that's changing drastically. A massive building block, not the only building block, but a massive building block to marriage is sex. It's a huge part of each one of these dimensions. So sex is framing society at some level because it really is designed to be a massively important issue. We are sexual beings. God created us that way. You will never escape that. You're managing it every day of your life. We're just not talking about it a lot. So 1 Corinthians 7 is dragging us into this territory. It's one of the benefits of studying through the book of the Bible. You don't get to ignore this. For those of you who are saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe this dude's talking about sex today. When, when you read the Bible, do you skip 1 Corinthians 7? Do you do that to the Bible? Do you say, I can't believe the Holy Spirit brought this up and inspired it? When you read it to your children, do you ask them, put your, put your hands over your ears right now. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 7. All right, can I just tell everybody who's got children, the Bible is not PG. And yet you're, gonna, you're supposed to read it to your children and have to explain it to them. Because it's describing a fallen world. There's, there's stories of voyeurism in here. You guys do remember David staring at a woman taking a bath. Remember this story? This is in the Bible. You let your kids read that? It is in the Bible. Right, I understand that there's weird stuff in here because the world is broken. Um, don't introduce your kids to a world that's not broken. They won't need a savior if you do that. They won't see the need for the savior. 
the world is broken and it is corrupted. But, but there's hope that, that God will touch this broken world in our lives. Let me give you a quick feel for the family, marriage, this issue of sex. Because this is where 1 Corinthians 7 is going. Uh, we are in a hurricane in this category of life. The ship at sea is being blown by every wind of ideas. And it's showing up in real ways. All right, here's some real world statistics for you. Uh, fact, the number of single adults today, for the first time in tracking consensus or census information about uh, adults, there are slightly more single adults today for the first time than married adults today, just beyond 50%. If you go back to 1976, there were 37% of adults were single. So the, the desirability of marriage is changing. The practice of marriage is changing. People are getting married later in life. Some are not getting married at all. But that doesn't mean they're not sexual beings, right? You're having to manage your sexuality without being married now. That's an interesting challenge. Um, some people go through marriage and then divorce and then don't remarry and approach relationships differently. Right? Here's an interesting thought, Meg Murphy in an education piece. She says, public disenchantment with marriage is reflected in national surveys. Half of American adults believe society is just as well off if people have priorities other than marriage and children, according to the recent Pew report. But what if marriage, listen, listen, what if marriage stopped forcing young people to conform to an outdated tradition? This hot topic was explored by Psychology Today's Susan Peace Goudois in a recent opinion piece, Millennials Are Changing the Rules on Marriage. Quote, rather than having only a choice to marry the same old way or to not marry, let's get a little more imaginative and Come up with a marital options that would be better suited to a variety of people, including a short-term trial union for younger couples, a child-rearing marriage for those who'd like to be nothing more than co-parents, or a socially acceptable live-apart arrangement. Will the millennial generation usher in a new era that saves American marriage by allowing it to evolve? Radical as it may seem, they just might. Right? There are ideas that are shaping what people are trying to be faithful to when they go to build life. Our, our society is made up, if it's made up of anything, it's made up of families. You can't come into the world without a man and a woman aiding you in that process. Now that was supposed to create a family unit when that happened. But you'll notice, if you just watch the evening news, nobody talks about the family anymore. They used to. Now when CNN or whoever you subscribe to is analyzing the world that we live in and trying to fix it, they're going to put all their energy into education. The education system needs to be X, Y, and Z. They're going to talk about economic development, giving people opportunities, what we can do to to improve people's lives, social programs, government programs that can give people head start and opportunities. They'll talk the whole evening and you'll never hear the family come up once. Nobody's trying to fix the family, but everybody's redefining it, giving up on it, shattering it with divorce and trying to do family in a different way. But it's no longer the epicenter of fixing anything. I mean, if you read your Bible, you recognize that's, that's out to lunch. 
That kind of approach to fixing the world that we live in is completely missing the main influencer of why people turn out the way they do. Because they were raised in families that involved marriages that involved sex. And that was a big part of why two people came together. And it's also a big part of why two people stay together. All right, so this is, this is fundamental to our culture. As the family disintegrates, it's leaving young people with a lack of cohesive ideas and principles and absolutes. You have families who don't model anything anymore. They don't believe anything anymore. Everybody's left to their own set of un- their own ideas. And kids are coming into those settings where there's, there's not cohesive influence in their lives. So things are being left to children. I literally heard this just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, an actress who's got, I don't know whether she has a daughter or a son, but at this point for her it's irrelevant, a seven-year-old who she is proudly allowing the seven-year-old to decide their own gender. And she's so proud of that. Like, this is cutting edge. And the reason goes back to when the child was three. I think the, I don't remember what the child was trying to figure out to be, but at three, I think the child said, I'm not a boy. At three. And so somewhere along the line, somebody installed this idea that parents are no longer there to guide, to head off disastrous ideas, to create dead ends for thoughts and say, you know what? This needs to go this way instead of that way. Parents are to empower, to empower everything, to empower your three-year-old, your seven-year-old. But see, that's noble. And she's saying it as an actress because this is going to be applauded. I'm going to be well received by this. But children are growing up without a sense of guiding absolutes and principles that they very much need. I mean, how, I mean listen, I grew up when that was never discussed. And I had a hard enough time trying to figure out whether I had too many freckles or my ears were too big. And I, you know, I couldn't sleep at night over that. How about serving up to me? And Keith, you don't really know if you're a boy or a girl. I mean, life is hard enough. Do we have to go to that level of, hey, everything's an option to you right now? That's not helpful. But it is kind of where things are going. The sexual immorality in our culture is so normalized and so accessible through pornography and images that we get familiar with that people have ideas about sex then they come into marriage and they marry a God-intended normal human being to engage something that God had created called sex and it's disappointing. It doesn't look like it needs to be filmed in some kind of movie. It doesn't meet the expectations that people have been creating in their lives for years and years and years. And so they get into their marriage and they're very unsatisfied. Very unhappy, very disappointed. This is a massive issue, right? Recently, Russell Moore wrote a book uh, called The Storm-Tossed Family. And I want to grab that that image, right? This This is a ship at sea that is being tossed and winds are blowing hard and waves are coming from all directions. All right, if you know anything about a ship... What's going to make that ship safe in that kind of a storm is something called ballast in that ship, right? Ballast is the weight in the ship that is located deep within the ship, that when things cross it, that weight presents a pull 
a counterbalancing influence that keeps you from flipping over. Well, the Bible is full of ballast for the human life. It brings weighty principles and thoughts and ideas so that when life comes at you, if you don't have any ballast, then then your your ship gets really top-heavy real fast and you flip over. Marriages today, I'm going to just tell you, like never before I've ever seen, and I think every of the pastors would agree with me, are flipping over left and right. Worse than I've ever seen. So what they could probably use is some ballast in them. All right, so what I'm about to say to you right now is, this is why this introduction is so long. This is a ballast warning. I'm, I'm going to warn you. The ballast that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 comes with some difficulty to listen to it, to hear it, to heed it, to welcome it. And that's true whether you're just discovering whether you believe in God or not or whether you have been a Christian for many years, right? So I think I put this in your outline. Question, did I put this warning in your outline? What will you do if you find yourself on the wrong end of the principles that Paul's about to discuss? He's going to talk about sex. He's going to talk about a healthy sex life between husbands and wives. He's going to talk about divorce. He's going to talk a little bit about singleness. He's already been bringing up sexual immorality. When Paul brings these up under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what will you do if you find yourself on the wrong end of these principles? That's, that's obviously not a 1 Corinthians 7 alone issue, isn't it? Isn't that always the case? I, I, we've said this to you before. This is a dangerous book. It will take you to places that you never would have gone. It will call you to things you'd have never considered. It will analyze your life in a way that will make you very uncomfortable. It's a dangerous book. But yet we're called to read it. And we're going to interact with it. And it's going to make us uncomfortable. And it's going to do that today. And it's going to do that as we move through 1 Corinthians 7. Right? A little series of questions here. How have you managed your singleness? If you're a single person, or you can remember being a single person, how did you do managing that? Because you might get on the cross end of Paul's presentation here. How have you managed your sexual urges as a single person or as a married person? How have you managed that? How have you pursued, or have you pursued, an unbiblical divorce? That's a, that's a very weighty issue. And one that needs to be spoken about carefully, but biblically. You could be here today with an unbiblical divorce in your background. Marriage is a massive part of our culture. It's a massive part of the kingdom of God. If you are on the wrong end of what's a, what you're about to read in 1 Corinthians 7, you're going to need to have faith and courage to face that. You can't tear these pages out of your Bible. There's still redemption in these settings. Every one of them. Have you deprioritized or disowned the biblical roles and responsibilities of a husband or a wife 
Right, today you're going to find some biblical responsibilities for husbands and wives to each other in the category of sex. What if you get on the wrong end of this? I realize this is not just a sex question, right? When you come to the Bible, you could get on the wrong end of what it's saying. What do you do when you get on the wrong end of what the Bible is saying? Do you close it? Do you run away from it? Or do you run toward it? Like it's trying to speak to my dysfunctional, broken life. Did you, you do know this. I know you know this. But sometimes when it gets personal, it gets weird. God wrote everything that's here into a fallen world. This book does not come about from the pre-Eden fall moment. It's written to a fallen world. Do you, do you think God's going to be surprised at all by how messed up your life might be? How out of bounds you have been in your past? How how many times you've fumbled in some significant area that's written on the pages of the Bible? Do you think that's going to cause God to stop wanting to be your God? To pursue you in love and kindness and mercy and gentleness and care? Are you at all fearful that as you read a passage that reads the resume of your life that you feel like, oh my gosh, I got, I got to put this down and move away from it. Why? Because you're afraid for God to read that? He already knows. And he ex- he's explaining to you why you are the way you are. And there's wonderful hope in that. Listen, God has written this entire book. Remember, this, this is a book of redemption. It's a story of God engaging our brokenness To bring us out of that brokenness and into the life that only he could give us. He knows that when he goes in to explore your resume. So you don't have to be afraid to pick up 1 Corinthians 7 and find out, ooh, if that's true, I'm really out of bounds. Or I was out of bounds. Or that's uncomfortable for me. That's okay. Because the Bible needs to go into these categories of our lives. Now, one more disclaimer here. Please don't assume I'm I'm preaching to you. Every Sunday, I preach to you. Uh, That has its own, you know, the word of God has created our topic here. So we're not talking about this because this is my favorite topic or I just couldn't wait to get to this. This is 1 Corinthians 7. You can't can't avoid it if you're going to preach from 1 Corinthians. But this is the Bible is saying this, and then I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to say some things. Uh, I I am not a a moral absolute. I'm a human being like you. I'm one of you. So I've got my own files in every category that I'll ever preach from. I've got my own deficiencies. I've got my own issues, things to overcome. I've got a past, etc. I'm grateful to God that I got saved as a teenager, so I got a short script in some categories that... The Bible interacts and says, ooh, remember, remember when you did? Yeah, that's right. And, and it came along to me in an age in life where it interacted with me and it told me that needs to stop like now. But, but don't assume just because I preach these things like, I, like they mean something and I believe them because I do. But don't assume that I always agreed with the Bible. You'd be wrong. When I met Christ and I had to get fixed and adjusted, there was a lot about what the way in which I wanted my world to be that was at odds with this. And so, you know, maybe you moved on from teenage years to 20s to 30s and you got saved when you were 45. 
All right, you got a lot more material to work with, right, than I did. Praise God, because I'm pretty sure uh, God knew I was going to wreck things real bad and stepped in. Inter- it was an early intervention for me, I think. But if you're 40 years old and you got saved, now you're 55, you, you're going to interact with these chapters in an interesting way because you got a lot of material that could be at odds with it, right? But the Bible's written to you. It's safe. It feels awkward, but it's safe for you to pick this up because it's redemptively wanting to touch your life. All right? But this is not an easy thing for us. It wasn't an easy thing for the Corinthians. Right? So before we start going home, you know, this is awkward. I'm going to give you a little bit of background here before I read the passage, just because I want you to realize how awkward this was going to be for the Corinthians. Their marriages were done very differently than ours. Very differently than ours. Right? So I'm going to overload you with some historical perspective here to start us before we read the passage. Again, longest introduction in the history of man. Message is short. Introduction is long. Ben Witherington writes this. He says, Roman marriages were, for the most part, arranged and involved little personal choice on the part of the participants, at least among the prosperous. The disposition of property was all important and marriage became a means of enhancing one's property and status. All right, so when you grew up and you look forward to marriage, you you weren't thinking some romantic, some Disney movie uh, princess kind of a thing that you were going to fall in love. You were thinking how to strategically marry in order to improve your property situation. You wanted to gain assets. You wanted to take a step up in society. You wanted to marry somebody who brought something to the table that was going to improve your economic factors. That's what you were raised to think about. Right, so that's very different than us, right, in a lot of ways. He says, hence, one often reads that a cardinal characteristic of good Roman marriages was concordia, a state of peace or harmony between husband and wife, rather than great love or affection. Right, makes sense. You didn't get married for love and affection. You got married for economic reasons, primarily. So let's just see if we can make this work. I don't even know if I like you all that much, is part of the disease. The relationship between husband and wife was often much like that between father and daughter or uncle and niece because a man was often considerably older than his wife. One more thought from Mr. Bradley in his book, Discovering the Roman Family. He says, because most marriages were arranged... There could never, at the outset, be an assurance of harmony between husband and wife. And in the likely absence of any strong, effective tie, characteristic of modern marriage, the potential for discord was always as great as that of concord. Effective expectations in Roman marriage had to be low. This makes no sense to us. This is not at all how we do anything in marriage today. You fall in love. The thing that leads you into marriage today is your affections for the other person. I like you at a level that I think is going to be a good deal in the future. And there's something that you have awakened in me emotionally that attaches itself to you that you really, really mean something to me. Can you imagine what we're about to read from Paul is speaking to people who may not feel that way 
towards each other. And yet they're going to be called to do some things towards each other in marriage. This is a radical thought because I can't tell you, most couples today, given our culture, and again, this is cultural training. Cultural training has taught us this. Marriages today, if the affections begin to wane, and I quote, fall out of love with you, it's over. It's over. People will pursue divorce. They will go and have an affair. They will break off the relationship. They're going to do something different because the linchpin today for us and what makes marriage defined is the level of affection. Am I in love with you? That was very different for these guys. That's not how their marriage is contained. Maybe some of them did. Maybe many of them didn't. But our culture teaches us that that's the thing. That's the critical thing. Now, can I say that's important? Yeah, that's important. But any of you have been married for a little while, you know your affections have this effect on you. And so sometimes your marriage is going to feel like it's down here. And I don't have a lot of great affections. As a matter of fact, we might feel like enemies right now. What are you going to do in your marriage? Your culture has taught you, if you feel that way, then let's, re- let's press the rewind button and go back and hyper-criticize how we got married because we must have married the wrong person. So we have created this idea that no one should be obligated because God would want us all to be happy. No one should be obligated to work through a marriage that's hard, that's difficult, that I don't have affections in it. And yet the Bible speaks into a culture where that's exactly what a lot of marriages were like. From the very beginning. And yet, you were still being called to live in it like it was a God-ordained, godly marriage. All right, so does, does that help a little bit to hear? Do you think, if you think some of this stuff's going to be hard for you to hear, can you imagine what these Corinthians were hearing when Paul said this? This stuff sounds crazy. One more crazy thought. Roussel says and he's quoted by Wetherington as well he says one of the more surprising elements of Paul's teaching here at least to Christian women of a more well-to-do and Roman background would be the advice about not abstaining from sex except during times of prayer Roman matrons had been brought up to expect that once one had one's two to three children One might expect to forego sexual relations thereafter. In the Roman view, sex in marriage was for procreation, not recreation. Oh, but there was a recreational dimension to sex. The pleasure pursuit happened outside of marriage. It was normative for the day. It's why we learned about prostitutes last week. So... You begin to expect your marriage to be a certain way. You are married to a person that you're going to have children with, but you might not experience much of sexual pleasure in that realm because you'd find it somewhere else. And that wasn't too unusual. Right? To that, Paul is going to speak in this passage. Right? Are you ready to read this passage now? Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul's gotten a letter from them where they're asking him some questions. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me put this... This, this is a quote from Stephen Um, who's a commentator on 1 Corinthians. I just, I just want to get the pieces of this in front of us. Because in this commentary that we've seen last week as well as this week on sex, sexual immorality, we're actually getting to see behind the scenes how God designed this thing. That it, it is not merely a physical act. It, it is too engaging a oneness that was intended for a marriage setting but when you pull it out of that marriage setting it retains the same sort of connection and so Paul warns about that that you are becoming one with a prostitute when you do this it's not just a physical act there's something more here and so Stephen um catches this really well he says Paul gives an incredibly balanced and humanizing view of sexuality Hedonism, right, this is giving yourself to pleasure, essentially says, have sex with anyone you want. The body is a morally neutral zone. As long as the adults are consenting, there are no moral implications. Does that sound familiar? Boy, these Corinthians are like us, aren't they? This view ultimately dehumanizes the participants by removing the soul from the picture of sexuality. Thereby animalizing human beings. Asceticism, right? This, this very careful way of doing life physically, on the other hand, says don't have sex with anyone. The body is a morally evil zone. Even within the context of marriage, sexuality is viewed as a weakness and potentially a sin. This view ultimately dehumanizes individuals by rejecting an essential part of their humanity. The body. God made your body. And he made it for certain purposes. Biblical sexuality, on the other hand, promotes an individual having sex with an individual of the opposite gender within the context of marriage. The Bible promotes this. It declares that the body is good. God has given us bodies to steward for his glory and our enjoyment. Those two phrases, for his glory and our enjoyment. Do you know that sex is for his glory and our enjoyment? Sex? Did you just say sex is for the glory of God? Can you say that in church? Yes! 
God created all things for his glory. And in his kindness, he installed our good in what brings him glory. So, a theology of taste buds requires you to recognize they're not necessary. Right? You could eat through a feeding tube. You could just shovel stuff in. Pass the the gullet on its way down. No taste at all. But God says, how about if it tastes really good on the way down? Love that idea, God. Thanks. Here's this thing called sex. You could just reproduce, you know, I don't know, you could come and, you know, drop something off in an envelope and then somebody else comes, drops it off too, and boom, baby pops out. No, how about God says, how about I make this really pleasurable? And so he does. So sex is created by God for his glory and our enjoyment. Biblical sexuality is the only... The only view of sexuality that can properly account for the body and the soul. So be careful how you venture into this subject. There is a body and a soul dimension here. Now, here's what I know about all of us are coming to this subject with different background. We're we're coming as men versus women. We're coming as singles and married. Important to recognize some of the personal things that you're bringing. Some of the subjective contributions that you bring to this subject while the Bible comes at it from an objective viewpoint, right? We bring a man's or a woman's perspective to this subject. We bring a pleasure or a taboo perspective. That's kind of not as prevalent, but if you're older, you, you are in touch with that. If you're younger, the taboo thing has kind of gone away. But if you're older, there was this kind of puritanical they would call it idea that that just sex is inherently kind of icky and you know and so you don't talk about it and you know oh. so there is this taboo feel that you know sex is just not something we talk about we just don't discuss that we don't it just feels like you shouldn't even be involved with it okay well some are coming with that uh, we bring bad experiences or we bring no experiences into this setting we bring cultural expectations and boundaries we bring a personal set of hormones and physiology, right? Not everybody in this room has the same level of interest physiologically in sex. But we're different in these categories. But the Bible's objectively speaking to us, right? So if you're really, really excited, you're so glad, finally, finally, we're talking about sex in church. This is so awesome. I'm so glad I'm here. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, oh my, this was the one day I wish I'd stayed home. Uh, all right, no matter where you are, the same Bible is going to say the same thing to both of you. And it's going to expect you to respond to it. So it's not saying, okay, for those of you who hate this subject, please read the alternate chapter available at the end of 1 Corinthians. It's going to say the same thing to you, whether you love sex or whether you'd like to stay away from it for the rest of your life. It's going to speak to both of us, right? So here's this new section from Paul. I'm going to race through some thoughts in these passages. He gets to this first verse and he introduces us to... Hey, now concerning the matters that you wrote to me, and that's going to be, that's going to be taken up in the rest of the letter. Right? So Paul's interacting with the Corinthians. There's a new subject matter here, but he's not the one driving. And he was bringing up quite a bit of the others. He had heard some reports. He's bringing some theological 
stuff to bear along the way. Now he's saying, hey, you guys have asked about this. So regarding those things. And then he's going to pick up this phrase right here. And the Greek language is hard to figure out when you're quoting something and when you're not. So there's not an absolute here, but your Bible is probably going to have quotation marks about it. Which sounds as though Paul is repeating to them, hey, you guys asked about this. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's a loaded statement if Paul is actually saying it just the way it is. If Paul's recommendation is, hey... Everybody, listen, it's, it's good if a man just doesn't have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, one, if you're, if you're, and you should be, a person who reads their Bible with a sufficient understanding of systematic theology. Right, so you should right now read that verse saying, what's the rest of the Bible say about this? Does the rest of the Bible say, oh yeah, that's true. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Well, that's not what it started off saying in Genesis. Genesis sounds like it's a really good idea for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. As a matter of fact, it's not a good idea for you to be alone. So I'm going to create a companion. I'm going to take this helper and I'm going to make her suitable for you. One of the things that she's suitable for is sexual relations between a man and a woman. So is Paul saying, is he he kind of shooting down the idea of sexual relations? Or is there a context here? Or is he just repeating a phrase that they were saying in Corinth? Well, it's, it's a little hard to interpret, but I think probably repeating a phrase. But he's definitely bringing up a subject here. Then he gets to verse 2. And he immediately responds with this. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So in light of the reality that there's going to be these desires in you, There's going to be temptation in you. Marriage plays a unique role in your life. Right, so let me tell you what I don't think Paul is doing here. And so for all of our singles here, be careful how you read that one verse by itself. Is that one verse saying, hey, you know what? If you you got a a lust problem or a passion problem, just get married. Um, In the equation of marriage... If I were to draw up an equation, a biblical equation, not just my personal equation, for marriage, uh, marriage would involve more than sex, but it would involve sex. It it would involve a a sense of covenant with another person, a love for that other person that is bound up in the word covenant. It would involve companionship and friendship and connection, and it would involve sex. So to me, if you come to me for marriage counseling and you don't have... All three of those, uh, you know, I'm going to send you back to go find them. Uh, Because I think all three of those are essential biblical elements. All of these, then you add one more motivation to it. For the glory of God. It's not enough for you to have these three. If you don't have the motive for the glory of God, when these things get hard and difficult and go away and wane and change, your motivation to stay married will too. Unless you are married for the glory of God, then you will figure out a way to work through these things and God will give you grace to do that. So this isn't a suggestion that, hey, if you're just kind of like burning hot, man, you just, you got a sex drive that's out of this world, just get married, will you? Um, who a world of problems is awaiting you? You might solve a little bit of one problem, but you're going to create a bunch of other ones. So this is not marriage advice, so to speak. Uh, but secondly, he gives a strategy here. That our life needs a strategy on how we're going to manage this thing called temptation. 
Temptation is a reality. It's not just a reality for sex. It's a, re- it's a reality all over our lives. And he highlights because of temptation. Right? You and I live in a fallen world where everything is twisted. Everything is twisted and being misused in some way. You and I are fallen creatures that have to deal with this world offering something to us. And then there's an active devil in the world who advertises and seeks to convince us to do the wrong thing. That's true every day of our lives. It's true for you sexually. Right, so, so this verse is going to highlight a good question. Is your life, is my life designed to deal with temptations? This is a strategy for Paul. This is an awareness that, hey, you got vulnerabilities here. Is your life designed to help you address these temptations? It's the fool who's read his Bible and walks out into the world and says, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where I go. Really? Did you read very far in this? Did you read anything about temptation? That, that you are made of flammable material? Just getting close to a flame is just a questionable thing to do because you're made of something. Well, this is a category that you need to know something about yourself. You can be set on fire. Well, but I've never been on fire. That doesn't mean you can't be. It just means you haven't stood close enough to the flame just yet. So you're going to need this, right? I mean, in this bigger category of sexuality and how it finds its way into marriages... The whole pornography industry is a screaming temptation to light something up in you that you are going to lose. You are going to. Let me just go ahead and say it that way. You are going to lose control of. You set this part of your house on fire. Fire doesn't like boundaries. Have you noticed that? It just seeks to burn everything. And pornography will do that for you. It, it will burn everything when it's done. So... What do you have in place to guard yourself from that? What are you doing right now to keep yourself from that temptation in this category of your life? If you're sitting here today and you got, well, I got no strategy. That's not a good thing because you live in a pornographic world, right? Notice a couple of things. I just want to move through some of these thoughts quickly, but notice the God ordained strategy that's consistent with God's design for sexuality. Sexual expression gets answered within a marriage. <clears throat> Notice if you burn with temptation and sexual passion in two places in this passage, he doesn't offer any advice on how to, to express that outside of marriage. You either exercise self-control or you exercise the right to engage sex in marriage. That's the only options that you're given here. The idea that I have these huge urges does not create an asterisk for you in this passage. This Bible verse speaks to the the person who's slightly tempted and the person who's greatly tempted in this area. It's the same exact passage. The only place for expressing sexual intimacy in the Bible is within a marriage. Everybody else is called upon to exercise self-control. And to do anything as a married person outside of that is, it's called on you to exercise self-control as well. And here's a little implication, a little side implication for this. No matter what our world has taught us, 
Your sexual relationship with your marriage partner is sufficient for your sex needs. Whether you're feeling that way right now or not. That's the reality of this passage. God invented this thing for a context. And and maybe your wife isn't a porn star, thank God. But for you, again, this is where your culture has, has trained you. For you to start adjusting your sexual expectations based on that kind of junk will bring you to a wife where you're going to be wondering, hey, you know, did I marry the wrong person? It's like, oh, this is just inadequate. Now, can you just read this Bible verse 165 times and get convinced God created you to be married to another person different than you. He was intentional. And he or she is sufficient for the sexual needs that you have in your life, even though they're not exactly you, don't want to walk this out exactly like you do either. And yet, God knew that from the beginning, that the two of you would be married and you'd be different and you'd be walking through this area. Verse 3 through 5, there's some, some clear instructions here that, please listen carefully as married couples here. Right, a lot of what we hear in 1 Corinthians is trying to correct the sex outside of marriage issue. This is actually speaking full throttle, very loudly to every married couple here. And quite honestly, it's saying some stuff that's a little challenging for some. But you need to listen to it. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife should to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Those statements should be governing your sex life as a couple. I know I'm saying this in front of singles, but you know, can you get this singles? If you decide ever to get married, this is what you're signing on for. I don't know how you feel about that, but this is what God has called marriage to be. This is God's advice for marriage. So this is ballast in our ship, right? This is very, very, very important stuff. For singles, I think I wrote this in your outline, in a marriage covenant, your entire life is given to this other person. Your entire life. They have as much rights over anything about you as you do. The idea that couples begin to fight as though they've got territory that's exclusively theirs is unbiblical. When you got married, you gave up all your property rights. All of your individuality was surrendered to becoming one with another person. You are now of a different sort. The idea that you're going to fight for your own territory, it absolutely makes no sense. You die to singleness. You take up a new identity that is joined to your partner. Your personal preference doesn't rule the day. Your identity as one in marriage does. All right, now, I'm saying all that, couples, in the context of sexual activity. Because that's the context in which it's being given. Now, we pull it out of that context and we use it in all kinds of ways for couples and, and marriage counseling, right? 
But here, here's some hard questions. I don't know if I put these in your outline or not, but just listen. What if I'm not as interested or not in the mood? Or what if my sex drive is changing? Or what if I struggle with sexual identity? What if I've had a sordid past? What if I've had previous same-sex attractional issues? What if I was abused? These are all real issues with their own layers of real difficulties. In our broken world, our lives get touched by a variety of broken things. And so every one of us is bringing some chapters of brokenness with us into marriage. So when we stand and read this passage, a husband should give himself to his wife. A wife should give herself to her husband. The Bible is not ignorant that you have a past. And that that past makes you hesitant, fearful, conflicted, confused. Right, so I get right now that, that this, this is a touchy area. But, but please, can I, I'm begging you, please listen carefully. Sex is such a fundamental piece of the human life that you cannot leave these areas alone. Even if your past and your walk in this area is extremely difficult, then you're going to need grace from God because this Bible verse doesn't just speak to those who don't have any past. It's speaking to those who have a past. And you understand, um, in Corinth, the population in Corinth would have been about one-third slave. As a slave, this is not colonial slave, slavery, so it's a little different form of slavery in this part of the world. But as a slave, as a woman who is a slave, it could be very likely that you have an abuse background in this category. And you're married now, and you're in the Corinthian church, and Paul is speaking to you. And he is saying the husband should give himself to his wife and the wife should give herself and that neither one of you have authority over your own lives but you should be giving yourselves to each other. Listen, that that may be met with difficulty. Maybe you were raised a certain way. Maybe there's a sense of shame about this topic. This topic needs to be regenerated and redeemed just like every other topic that's in the Bible. And and you and I can't stay away from it. And we can't stay away from it because we're married and an aspect of our marriage is sexual. It's supposed to be. And it's not dirty and it's not wrong. The world has made it that way. God never made it that way. Can God restore what's broken and make it something healthy and whole? Well, if he can, don't we believe that about everything about God? Isn't that our ultimate hope? That God restores everything ultimately that was fallen and touched by sin. It's maybe a hard subject, but it's still a subject that the Bible just walks straight into and begins to speak to it. Right? So, husband and the wife should, should be doing something in this category. If that's not happening... Or if there are, because it does give you permission that there's going to be moments of the exceptions. A command, do not, do not deprive one another. Don't do it. Command. 
with all the complications that go with it, it's a command. Do not deprive one another except for, by agreement, for a limited time. So your sex, if you, if right now, I know this is a weird thing to think about, but you know, if you, if you pulled up the, the tape and let me go back on the calendar here. And when was the last time married couples, we had sex and you're going back a long way. Do you think that's describing the limited time that Paul had in mind here? I don't know how long your prayer life is. I guess we could compare it to that, right? Keith, we've been praying in my house for months months if you want to preach on prayer next we're with you buddy (laughs) prayer and fasting we are so serious about God Um, this is treating this as though there's going to be these these brief interruptions that would characterize your life that are both consensual and agreed upon between the two of you so if you are here today and you got to go way back to find sexual activity in your relationship, listen, you need to make movement in that category. Because it's a vitally important aspect of who you are as a human being. You are a sexual being. God made you that way. And he puts you in a marriage to another person on purpose so that an aspect of your humanity would find its way into this other person's life. Now, can you imagine the challenges of the arranged marriages in Corinth to read that? I mean, I know right now some of us are going, oh, this is going to be... I'm not included in that, by the way, but some of you are like, oh, this might be really hard to... I don't know if I want to. Ah, Can you imagine the Corinthians? Paul, did you just say... You don't understand. This is like a financial upgrade to me. I don't even. I don't even think he's attractive. Oh my gosh! Does it really say that? Oh, women's meeting after this in Corinth had to have been unbelievable. <laughs> Can we talk, ladies? Does it actually say that? Oh my gosh! Oh. All right. Well, it does actually say it. And then it gets a little sticky here. In verse 5, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, listen, I'm reading 1 Corinthians 7, ladies. I'm just reading 1 Corinthians 7. It said it. I didn't. And here's where I'm carefully saying that. Because the idea of whether or not a husband and a wife give themselves sufficiently to each other sexually could in any way show up as a temptation that causes your partner to stumble in this area is one of the most revolting hated thoughts between couples, especially for women. So quite honestly, when I do marriage counseling in these areas, I'm very careful to at all make it sound that way. I'm not like the Apostle Paul in that moment because he did make it sound that way. He actually made it sound as though if your sex life isn't healthy, it could be producing temptations for your spouse and as awkward as that is, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let some other guy say this. Because I, I, I do have a difficulty with that. Let me just say this, though. 
There's a difference between temptation and adultery. Right? Adultery is a choice to break your covenant with another person and to commit a physical act with someone else. So it's, 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 they're related for sure. But you're not just doing some physical thing because you were tempted. No, 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 no. You broke your covenant when you did that. You made vows until death do your part that you would have self-control and you would be faithful to this person. So what I would never say to a woman, I don't think this is what Paul's saying either, is your lack of engaging your spouse sexually is what caused him to commit adultery. No, no, no. He chose to commit adultery. That was a choice he made. And it wasn't just a physical act on his part. It was a breaking of a promise that he made before you and God. And that's not the same thing, but it is related. So there shouldn't be a man in this room going, yeah, I, I, yeah. That's, that's, that's why I went outside my marriage. No, you went outside your marriage because you lacked self-control and because you disobeyed God. And you threw your covenant in the trash. That's why you went outside your marriage. But ladies, and I'm saying this is probably more of a ladies issue. This verse says what it says. And you can't ignore it, right? So I'm going to let somebody else flirt with a bad interpretation of it. N.T. Wright says what I wouldn't say. He says, he is saying that married people who don't engage in sexual relations are in danger of being tempted to immoral pursuits elsewhere. Some have even suggested that part of the problem in chapter 6, Christian men visiting prostitutes, may have been caused by Christian wives deciding to abstain from sex in order to develop their spiritual lives more fully. Seriously, dude, you put the word caused in there? All right, I got a problem with that. I don't think they caused, but I do think there is a managing of temptation here. Okay, ladies, you're just reading this with me, right? So I, I know this is awkward to read, but it is in the Bible. Right? One of the things that's so important about this book is, is it provides the ballast in our ships. Right? This is a ballast issue. That There's coming storms and there's coming temptations that are going to blow on the surface. And it's going to toss your marriage in every direction. It's going to toss your husband and your wife in every direction. You're going to need some ballast in it. This is ballast right here. What you're hearing today is ballast. It's going to strengthen and touch the sexual dimension of your marriage union in a way that's going to protect it. Make it healthy. Help it to become all that God intended it to be. This is ballast. Do not walk out of here without some ballast in this area. You live in a hypersexual culture. And there is a reality to temptations in that culture. All right, last thought here, and we're going to pray for a moment. I'm going to ask this question to us. I think I listed this out because I find in an interesting way, in this category, Christians are not fighting for the family. I know we got a good reputation for that, right? We're the people who fight for family. All right, so read with me here. Listen, it's one thing for us to shout back at CNN that liberal policies are destroying the family, which is the foundation of society. But we give ourselves a pass in these ballast principles that may not suit our personal preference or season. According to God, these things matter. Sexual intimacy 
has boundaries and principles that we need to value, agree with, and maintain in our marriages. We need every marriage couple here, I'm asking you this question, do you value, agree with, and maintain these biblical principles? This is just the Bible telling you this is what marriage should look like. And for whatever personal reason I come to this topic and I say, well, not really. The Bible calls on me in every category to do that. To value what it says. To agree with what it says. I'm called to agree with this book. And then to maintain these principles in my life. They are for my enjoyment and for the glory of God. So we cannot blow them off. One other thought. If you're single, this is what you're getting yourself into. Read the fine print and take serious the cost of building this house. You are signing on for sexual intimacy with one person for the rest of your life. That sounds crazy today. It didn't sound crazy to God. When he invented it, it was doable. It's still doable. It's still the best idea. It is still where sex belongs. One person for the rest of your life. Now let me read that a little bit differently for all of us who are married. You are signing on for sexual intimacy with one person for the rest of your life. Not just when it's convenient, when you feel like it, when you're in the honeymoon phase. You're signing on for this. You are a sexual being made by God in intimate connection with another sexual being made by God. And the intention of God is that that will travel with you as you move through life. It may look exactly the same as your age changes and your physiology changes along the way. But it doesn't, this verse doesn't kick in and engage when you are interested in this verse. It's always true. For whatever reason we might be limited, it is always true. All right, Eric, you guys can come back up here. All right, let me carefully say something because I, I want us to pray. And, you know, normally this would be a little bit of what you do at a, at a marriage conference weekend. And even there, because I have done something like this at a marriage conference weekend. And even there... It feels awkward. You're just among married couples and everybody knows that those two people have sex. Everybody knows it. And still when you talk about it in the public, it's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Honey, everybody knows. (laughs) Yeah, everybody. (laughs) Um, They all know. Trust me, they all know. Um, All right, so this ventures into... (laughs) Uh, (laughs) this is not a moment you want to draw any attention to yourself you know (laughs) Uh, you just want to have your best poker face going right now it's like just move on Keith move on I agree with, I live by a phrase that John Stott, great, not alive anymore, but pastor from England, wise, godly man, 
describe preaching this way. He said, preaching should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. Right, so there are, that's two groups that are here this morning in this topic that I want to be careful about identifying them. Right, so there are some who are, are just comfortable. They've made up their own way of doing this whole topic in their life. They're just comfortable there. But they're not in agreement with God. They're just comfortable there. This message needed to disturb your comfort. It needs to send a message to you that you can't stay there. That's, that's not God's place for you. So you need to feel disturbed right now. And that's okay. In fact, that's okay about a lot of messages sometimes in our lives. Comes to us and says, hey, you know where you are right here? You've been here long enough. And I just arranged it so that that dude up there would pick up this passage and would bring this area to life for you. But preaching should also comfort the disturbed. And in this category, there could be many here who are disturbed by past experiences, by scarring, encounters. Now, trying to take a step forward for you is totally different than maybe the person who's comfortable with the way they're doing stuff. You're in a very different place. And I respect that. And maybe this is not a big leap forward for you. It's, it's just, maybe this morning for some, it's just, can you just face in the right direction today? Can you stop having your back turned to this topic like, I am not going there. I'm not going there. Can you at least unfold your arms and just look at God and say, yes, God, I do know 1 Corinthians 7 is there. I do know it's using the word should. And maybe that's as far as you can go. But it's a move. For some, that move needs to be carefully counseled and cared for as you move forward. So this is not the the place for counsel for that. That could take some time and, and want to invite you to come seek some counsel and help in this area. But, but let me read this thought. This might be a book, a good resource for folks who are struggling with overcoming past issues in their life. David Powelson has written a book called Making All Things New. It's about restoring joy for those who have experienced sexual issues in their past. Listen carefully. He says this. The Lord has a highly positive view of sex. He has a highly negative view of immorality. And he has a deep concern, both for the consensually immoral and for the victims of the criminally immoral. He has more mercy than we can imagine. Of course, there are not two gospels, one for sinners and one for sufferers. There's one gospel of Jesus Christ who came to make saints of all kinds of sinners and sufferers and sufferer sinners. Whatever our particular configuration of defections and distresses. The proactive sins inflamed by immoral desires and significantly different from the reactive sins energized by fear and self-protection. The temptations that come by allure are significantly different from the temptations that come by affliction. This world misleads and bedevils all of us, however vast the differences in what people face. Jesus comes for each and all. 
So the dynamic by which the sexually immoral and the sexually victimized are transformed has a core similarity. Though his work unfolds by many different ministry routes, grace is not a panacea, a single message prescribed for whatever ails you. Christ comes bringing a myriad of specific remedies that address specific persons' struggles and troubles. He always embodies steadfast love. But like his Proverbs, he admonishes the sexually unruly and calling for them a radical U-turn. Like the psalmists, he comforts the faint-hearted, offering refuge and strength. Like a prophet, he brings justice, indicting oppressors and defending victims. Like a shepherd, he guides and protects holding on to the weak. He is patient with all whom he befriends. He meets you right where you are and he all, he's always thinking about what you need to know and the next step you need to take. Now, can I just tell you, God sovereignly arranged what you needed to know this morning. You are not here by accident. You're not interacting with this topic by accident. God knew what you needed to know. He's also there with you in the next step you need to take. Let's stand up together. Lord, would you just be among us here? I know you are. Where two or more are gathered, Lord, there you are in our midst. So Lord, you are with us as individuals, but you uniquely dwell among us when we gather. Lord, you designed this area of our lives. You intended it for something. God, it's gotten so messed up, so distorted. So much wrong has been done under the motivation of sexual pursuit. Lord, there are some here who have run toward that for self-pleasure. And Lord, there are some here this morning who are seeking to run away from it for self-preservation. God, thank you. We read in Revelation that you are the God who is making all things new. Thank you that you're not okay with sin having the final word. It will not have the final word on anything. You will step into every category where sin has brought suffering and pain and death. You will have the final word. Lord, there are some folks here this morning who need you to have the final word in this area of their lives. There are some here this morning who did not walk in here this morning with the hopes that this area, this wound would have the scab picked. Feel like it's bleeding again. 
Lord, you led us to these passages for your glory, for our good. If you're here this morning and your past has inflicted a control in this category of your life. You feel the fear of venturing into anything in this category. You feel unsafe. Vulnerable. a need for courage in this category because like every area of your life God hasn't necessarily called you to feel safe he's called you to trust him trust is more important than safety I want to pray for every person here who's step of walking in this area involves trusting you Lord because for some they feel like you just weren't there for them when something really bad happened and now they're being told they need to trust you because we must trust you we have nowhere else to look We trust you for greater things. We trust you for eternity. We trust you to resurrect us when we die. We trust you that suffering works out for good. Lord, we trust you for so many things. Lord, I pray for those who are hesitant to move from where they are because of trust. Lord, would you help, help them this morning. Address the issue of them trusting you in this area. God, I pray for healing. God, I thank you for the concept of healing. Lord, I thank you that some things that were once broken are now healed. That they are in a different condition. Lord, thank you for the bodily examples that so many of us have. Scars. Wounds. Broken bones. That today they're they're mended. They work. They're whole. Lord, would you visit this area of our lives, this very important area with healing. Lord, that which was broken, would you repair it? Would you make it to become again what we thought it might never be? Got to pray for couples who have found themselves in a difficult place. This is hard to talk about. So it goes unspoken. Lord, would you help couples this morning to venture into awkward conversations. Lord, give them grace just to open a conversation that says, I know this is awkward, but... This is such an important area, Lord, of our lives. We cannot ignore it. Lord, for every couple here who has ignored this 
aspect of their relationship. Lord, this morning, would you convict and convince husbands and wives that that this cannot be an area that just develops its own pattern, goes in its own direction, is managed by time and chance. Lord, would you give grace for there to be intentionality between couples to have conversations. Lord, I I pray for grace in days ahead for help in these areas. Lord, for some, would they get stuck? Would Would they seek counsel? God, would you just not let any of us be okay? With it just being left alone, this area matters. Lord, when we came to you, we came to God who promised to make all things new. God, we cling to that. When we get to this section of our lives, God, we cling to that. You you promised, Lord. You promised. And this morning, we're just going to take a step toward you and your promise. And would you meet us? Would you give grace to us? Would you bring healing? And would you bring wholeness in this place, in our lives? For your glory, Lord, for our enjoyment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.